Hey guys, I want to welcome you to the weekly Wednesday for the Financial Freedom Newsletter, where every week, every Wednesday, we delve into something inspirational, motivational, something excerpt taken from the Financial Freedom Weekly Newsletter. Wherever you are, if you're listening on Spotify, on iTunes, Google, be sure to click the like, subscribe, share, comment. Without ado, let's get into the show. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hey guys, welcome to today's podcast episode. I'm really excited about today's guest, Bernard Chen. He's a therapist and consultant, and he's going to talk to us all about identities, relationships from a therapist and licensed counselor standpoint, and hailing from San Diego. So Bernard, welcome. Thanks so much, Chris. Yeah. Tell people about your background training, how you got started, and we'll dive right into it. Sure. So I was um, born in Southern California in a city called Roland Heights. And I actually grew up um, moving all the time to um, different countries. Um, My dad worked in business at the time. And so from there, that had a huge impact on kind of my cultural development and kind of identity as a person. I think it's been kind of a lifelong process for me. There are still a lot of things that I'm still trying to understand about myself in this stage of my life. Um, I'm going to be turning 30 in a couple months. So that's just, this is kind of a milestone for me to reflect on a lot of things that I've um, lived through. Um, I returned to the U.S. for college. Um, I went to UC San Diego for my bachelor's in psychology. And then for my master's degree in marriage and family therapy, I attended the University of San Diego. So basically my whole life as an adult, I've been here in San Diego. I got licensed uh, in late 2021, which was during the pandemic, and I opened my private practice right away, mostly focused on telehealth, but now I have a mix of kind of telehealth and in-person. Um, along the way, I got married uh, last year. Or we just hit our one-year anniversary as well. Um, my wife, Priscilla, is also an MFT. So we made plans to reopen my practice and we work together uh, now. Right now, what we're focused on or specializing in is something that Um, I guess there's no official name for it, but we're calling it uh, team-based couples therapy, where you will meet with both of us in the session since we uh, are married ourselves. So we've been working on that for the past year. um, And yeah, things are great. We really enjoy being self-employed. Private practice is what we've both always wanted. So we're excited to, to be here and just continue working on things. Yeah. It's so interesting how were you, like you're, I know this is kind of cliche, but like your environment and how we're like how you grew up kind of influences your the way because like like I have friends who are like military brats and then mm-hmm. like they actually uh, have trauma from like moving around and having to like form new friends and they resent their parents for being in the army and then like because I I grew up in the in the south where like all my 
you know, cohorts were all Caucasian. So, you know, I never felt in place. So that kind of, you know, dictates how I think, see things. And um, so we'll kind of talk about this thing where um, how uh, different attachment styles influence the way individuals approach relationships with their spouse, colleagues, maintaining healthy relationships, etc. Sure. So attachment styles came from some very early research in the 20th century about how babies develop their attachment with their mother or other caregivers. There was an experiment where um, the mom and the baby would interact in a room and then the mom would leave the room for about five minutes and they would observe how the baby reacted. And from there, they kind of distilled things down to about four main attachment styles. Um, they are secure, anxious, avoidant. And the fourth one is called fearful attachment or disorganized attachment. Early on, when you're growing up, all of your needs are taken care of by your parents or other adults. And because you have limited um, communication ability, you have to use other ways of letting people know what your needs are. So that would be, you know, um, crying, um, walking over, you know, all of that body language, nonverbal stuff um, that happens at an early age, I would say from like zero to one or zero to two, that's already setting the stage for how you feel about a bunch of things, you know, whether you matter as a human being, whether what you want matters, how you ask for things, how you ask for help. And based on how your parents gave you feedback on that, because they have their own attachment style that they've developed, you will start to form certain um, core beliefs about kind of who you are and how you're supposed to function in the world to solve problems and to get your needs met. Mm, interesting. And how about... Um kind of share personal anecdotes or inside from your journey also you know with your spouse and kind of around this attachment style and how you've built it into a practice you know you enjoy financial freedom uh, what valuable lessons you both have learned along the way mm -hmm. yeah i would say um that over the years for myself i've uh, I've mostly operated through anxious attachment and that's having to do with a lot of separation from people, um, moving, changing schools. I changed schools about 10 times before, um, coming to college. And so that created a strong sense of, I think, loss and deprivation for myself where like, I never felt like I could have enough of what I wanted socially. Um, I kind mm -hmm. of internalized this belief that like, nothing is ever going to be perfect. I mean, at the end of the day, yeah, no one is perfect. Our life is not perfect. But I felt that in a very um, upsetting way, I think, where I felt like I couldn't, I couldn't ever feel satisfied. Um, and the way that I kind of dealt with that, I think was through a lot of I think perfectionism. So, you know, coming to a new school in a new class, you're trying to figure out what other everyone else is like and how you might fit in. And I found myself kind of putting pressure on myself to be perfect or to not have any flaws because there's with anxious attachment, there's a lot of, I think, fear of judgment and fear of rejection that if you don't kind of act a certain way, then people will not engage with you. And so that's kind of how I lived through um, my childhood. You know, I grew up with, you know, pretty good grades, you know, sometimes the best grades in the class while also being that outsider. And so I had to really kind of navigate how people responded to me. Um, and, you know, I would take things very personally back then, you know, the kind of 
um, judgment from people or resentment that I was this new kid who came in and suddenly changed the whole dynamic of the class. And so I felt a lot of, I think, self-criticism about that, that mm. I felt like I couldn't fully be myself. That's something that I'm still working through and learning as an adult because uh, things are different when you're an adult. You know, things are more free. People are friends with, with each other because they choose to be. You don't have that context of like being a school in a school and kind of being forced to be there all the time. And so mm. during the times that I'm kind of on my own in my life, I've had to learn how to build up, I think, a relationship with myself. And that's usually when we're doing attachment style therapy. Um, that's one of the top, I think, treatment goals is to improve that relationship with yourself and being okay with living on your own. I think the pandemic really taught myself, it taught me a lot of that because of being more isolated um, and all of my social contact basically morphed into just going into work, seeing clients, seeing people, and then coming back home um, and not having a lot of that um, connection. And I had to learn how to basically like myself. And that's something that I didn't understand before. When people say like, you have to like yourself and love yourself first before connecting with others. In my head, I was thinking, well, why do I have to do that? If I can just like be perfect and perform for the other person that I don't have to focus on how I feel um, or whether I like what I'm doing, you know, as long as the other person is okay with me. So those are some examples of um, ideas and feelings that I've had to really kind of understand about myself. And also accepting that like, this is what I've gone through. I can't go back to change it. I can't um, go back and give myself, you know, a quote unquote normal childhood, uh, whatever that means. And um, so I just have to be okay with whatever it is now uh, and with the person that I am now myself. Fascinating because I wonder, because um, for example, kids that, you know, their parents divorce, they express some of the same feelings that you have, um, in like, for example, you know, my experience is a little bit different because like ABCs, you know, American born Chinese mm -hmm. and well, a lot of my colleagues, you know, friends, they basically went in and, um, you know, kind of established their communities. Like they've, you know, they tried to create a community, you know, with their sense of identity. And uh, whereas, you know, kind of if you're in a predominantly Caucasian community, like you kind of try and sim assimilate but, you, but they don't really consider you part of them and then then when you try and like assimilate with other asians they don't consider you asian because you're too you know you're too uh white so you know kind of you know very similar things like in, as an outsider and then you kind of create these adaptations where you want i didn't depend on anybody i didn't i did everything myself so i and i enjoy sometimes just being you know by myself and just you know introspecting and uh, you know, that doesn't bother me, but for some people, they, you know, it's, it's kind of, they consider it weird or unnerving, but, um, it's very fascinating. Um, so then, you know, the next question is, uh, this idea with, um, how does this, like these attachment styles affect people's relationship with money? That's, that's really interesting as well. Yes. Yeah. Well, basically money is a resource. It helps you to solve problems and get your needs met. And so, you're going to have certain core beliefs about where money comes from. And a lot of it definitely is influenced by family, you know, based on how much they told you about their jobs and where money came from, uh, the way that you saw them pay for things. You know, if they paid for things very openly in front of you, in front of the kids, or they did it secretly, you start to pick up on all these patterns of like what is supposed to happen. And we kind of assume that 
will be like our parents when we grow up, the kind of jobs that we have or how we, you know, the kind of house, the kind of car that we're going to have. And for myself, uh, what happened was we, we came back to the U.S. once around the mid-2000s and then we left again in 2006, which actually, now that I think about it, was perfect timing because it completely dodged the financial crisis. Um, at the time, though, I felt a lot of, yes, resentment and anger about, like, why are we leaving again? I finally thought uh, that I could um, focus on settling in the U.S. to basically, um, I don't know, like, change myself to become normal again, quote-unquote, based on what I thought I needed to feel okay. And I felt a lot, a lot of, yes, anger um, with that. And I think a lot of, yeah, blame, because each time that we have moved, um, it impacts your financial situation. Moving costs a lot of money, especially to a different country. And so I didn't really understand where those decisions were coming from. Um, and the, the way that I kind of learned from that is that for better or for worse, I need to, it's kind of what you're describing, I need to figure it out myself. I need to learn about financial planning, personal finance um, on my own so that I don't end up in these situations where as a child, I felt out of control, that these changes were happening to me without my um, input. Um, and so that kind of desire for independence in your decision-making is I think a big factor for me now. Um, and I think for me, what I need to work on now is to kind of remove, yeah, remove and kind of resolve some of those feelings of anger and resentment so that I can just be independent and kind of be happy about it. A lot of people will describe going through life begrudgingly independent or in our relationships we describe it as begrudgingly single for example uh, a lot of people felt that during the pandemic we go through life we know how to do those things we learn to survive and to take care of ourselves but we do it with a lot of i think regret and grief and like wishing that things were different so that's um something that i'm still trying to reflect about like how can i go about my life with these tools and skills that i've learned to to make things better for me but without all of those negative feelings attached to it great it was so fascinating because um you know part of you know financial freedom was like because uh, i saw my parents and they had different ideas about money they were um you know they were basically telling me that the government was going to take care of you and you know like social security that was gonna that, that was gonna you know be your safety net and then after that it was like pensions, you know, work for a company for 60 years, you know, pensions, pensions. And I was like seeing everybody getting laid off. So I was like, you know, that's why kind of interesting how, you know, what you see and, you know, what you're hearing kind of influences your, the way you view money, how you think about financial freedom, you know, um, which is interesting. The other question is, uh, what brings me to this question, how young adults can kind of differentiate from their family, like, you know, they've gotten kind of got these influences, you know, some good, some bad, maybe some resentment, some trauma, but then they want to go out and make it their own. So how do they how do you do that? I would say the first step is to understand what those influences are. A lot of people live their life and they function um, with those influences without knowing that they're doing that, that they're operating from it. And a lot of it is, you know, emotions like fear and anxiety, worry, or even kind of like self-criticism. Um, uh, if we grew up with critical parents uh, as adults, we'll continue to criticize ourselves, even if they're not there. So it's important to just know that it's there first and understand what it is. It does take a lot of work to, you know, break down different situations that you've been through and 
figure out, you know, how did I respond in this situation? Did I respond because of fear or anxiety and not because of, you know, you're not acting from your um, authentic self. It does take a long time for people to understand what that is. You basically take uh, most of your 20s and your 30s too to understand what that is. It's hard though because we go through that period of our life with all these different pressures and responsibilities like going through school, grad school, um, med school, residency, and academia. People feel like they've lost the opportunity to do all of that. And it's not until later um, where they can kind of really reflect um, on that stuff. Um, it does take a lot of feedback, I think, having supportive people you trust who can point those things out to you and say like, hey, you were you know, feeling this way and it didn't seem like you. And we grow up thinking that this is going to be who I am and this is who I've become, but that really isn't true. You know, going through life is all about change. Uh, and you have to, yeah, you have to be willing to change and, and, and understand that you are not destined to become like your parents. You know, each time that a new generation is born, there's an opportunity for things to be different. And we see this a lot actually with, you know, immigrant families, whether, you know, Asian or not, you know, where we come to the U.S., we were born here, uh, whatever your situation is, and we see kind of how a lot of our parents almost like had a hard time adapting to the new situation where we don't have to have as much um, fear um, anymore about losing all your money, um, you know, losing everything. Uh, my wife's parents um, escaped from Vietnam, and so um, we have different examples of that, you know, living through fear in their financial choices, um, their financial planning, and it can really skew kind of your assumptions on about like what is safe or not you know, how much money do you need to be safe you know in the fire world we talk about what's the right fire number and people have to work through you can work through the numbers of course and understand like what you really need to live but you also have to work through the emotions of like feeling like it's never going to be enough um, or feeling like i'm never going to work enough to get there so i think the bottom line is just understanding that understanding that you have a chance to not be like your parents um, you don't have to copy them completely. And you can work through the sometimes the guilt of not doing that. We sometimes feel an obligation to copy our parents because of you know how much they invest in, in in our life. But you really don't have to. And that would just kind of repeat the cycle with your own relationship or your own children. Yeah, it's interesting because um I'm I'm an ex annual and then uh, like I'm the oldest, and then like my brother, he's a millennial, right? And then I find that with each successive generation, so like my nieces and nephews, they kind of like, you know, um, second generation, you know, third, they're kind of insulated. So kind of all the dysfunction and, you know, all of the family traumas kind of diluted down and they're, they're more westernized. They grew up here and, you know, they're kind of, they understand, you know, there's differences and, um, you know, it's, it's so interesting because like, like my grandparents, they did it like they didn't trust banks, so they stuffed money into their mattresses and then my my parents generation they're like avoid the stock market because it's a scam but you know how are you going to keep up with inflation you you just hold cash it's like devaluing every year so you have to put it into something that keeps up right so um really interesting so what kind of mindset and attitudes do clients need to bring to therapy in order to maximize the benefits and succeed in improving their relationships and family dynamics I would say the biggest thing would be kind of motivation to change. And it's not something that we as a therapist can control. Um, in addiction treatment, there's a concept called the stages of change, um, basically where people move through these stages of feeling comfortable to 
um, to take action. There's a lot of ambivalence. I think when people come to therapy, they understand that something is not going well in their life. They don't really like it, but they don't really know what to do next. Um, and so it's important to be open to, I think, learning new things. I think change and learning are basically the same word. And so you want to be curious, I think, about understanding yourself and not just looking for um, a quick fix. Uh, one of the unfortunate things about, I think, the way therapy has gone um, and in keeping up with kind of the insurance world and kind of that, I would say, overemphasis on making sure that everything is evidence-based, it kind of takes away the soul of kind of that relationship of like understanding yourself. You can't just, therapy is not something you administer to people like a medication or a procedure that you just learn and do it a thousand times. It really is a one-on-one -on -one unique thing every time. And so I think it's important for clients to understand that, you know, each therapist who you meet with is going to be a different person and you want to make sure that they're a good fit for you, you know, that they listen to you in the right way. They, they, they ask the types of questions that um, resonate with you. And it is a long-term process. You know, a lot of times when people come to us and they look for the quick fix, you know, tell me what to say or what to do, a frustration comes very quickly because even for me, you know, even though I'm the, you know, supposedly the expert in all of this uh, and working with you, I don't, I don't, I'm not going to know what the immediate thing is for you. It takes time to understand your situation and your past as well. Yeah. Really fascinating. One, one question is, um, I have, you know, kind of two questions is one is, um, you know, COVID caused a lot of destruction, but out of that destruction came a lot of, you know, really innovative and kind of way people think about work life and kind of purpose, meaning, and uh, the pandemic influenced the way individuals and families connect with each other. And what role has therapy played in helping them adapt to these changes in communication dynamics? Yeah, I think that the COVID pandemic kind of took away a lot of things that people took for granted, like access to the family and friends in our life. Um, it took away, maybe we took our jobs for granted as well. Um, and it kind of exposed how passive or not passive people have been living their life. And it showed up in how people um, reacted, I think with a lot of anger and frustration and also fear about the future. Um, this is not something that anybody expected to happen um, really, but you can kind of see the way that people um, responded shows the amount of resilience or that solid sense of self that we were talking about, how much they had that. Because once we were at home by ourselves, we couldn't necessarily uh, reach out for help right away. There was a lot of, I think, quiet time where we had to think about what do I want to do next? You know, what works for me as an individual? And you couldn't just assume that you could go back to your original life context and be okay. And so, you know, some, I forgot who, but during this time, somebody coined a term called K-shaped recovery, where certain um, certain stocks um, and, uh, went up, continued to go up, and other ones were flat or, or downward. And so from that starting point, depending on how things turned out, there's a bigger um, gap now. Um, we have heard about, um, you know, NVIDIA and kind of the related group of stocks that have continued to to be uh, to do better than, than the rest of the economy. Um, I don't really know why that happened, of course. I'm still trying to understand that. But I think I'm, I'm trying to apply that idea of the K-shaped recovery to individuals and personal growth, is that depending on what you do at the, at the starting point, that effect of like improving and, and benefiting yourself will really compound. We are now 
three to four years into since I would, I would say February, March, 2020. And if you, you know, listening at home, if you think about the people around you who have done well or not still not have not done so well, or who are still stuck, you can kind of think back of like, what kind of choices were they making um, during this period? Um, were they trying to take steps to continue making, making sure that they were okay? Were they trying to find new opportunities for work? And we saw that with people quitting their jobs, moving to um, different states, um, rather than um, staying stuck. We also have a group of people who, I would say, unfortunately, were very passive with that. And the most recent example of that in the financial world is federal student loans restarting this past month. I have been starting to make my own payments as well, but there was a survey that came out where uh, where people were going, not necessarily going out of their way, but maybe in a more passive way, continuing to spend money and cons consume because they thought that forgiveness was coming because we kept hearing about it in the news. Um, and now I think those people have kind of a dilemma on their hands and also maybe some reflection about like why I thought that was okay, why I thought that was a good idea. So obviously I hope all of you can uh, take care of yourselves and, and make um, the right choices for you. But I think the lesson here is that it's important not to just kind of believe the environment that you're in. You have to always check in with yourself and say like, if I do what everyone else is doing, if, is that really right for me? Um, if I stay in this job or if I quit my job or quit my school to do something else, how is that going to make things better for me? How does that make sense for what I want to achieve? And not just passively, you know, following everybody else. Yeah. Yeah. I love that. Um, really fascinating. How can people contact you, follow you, you know, reach out to you. Um, it's, it's really interesting how, you know, especially, you know, from a Asian standpoint, because we have, you know, it's, uh, we have all these different dynamics and how can people contact you, follow you on socials, et cetera? Sure. So our website is www.bernardpriscilla.com. It's just our first names um, strung together. You can find more information about our practice and how to meet with us. Um, currently we're licensed in California and Florida as well for uh, online telehealth sessions. And if you are in San Diego, we are available um, in person as well. In terms of social media, uh, I'm still kind of learning a lot of that. Uh, right now I am on LinkedIn uh, to start with. Uh, so uh, everyone can find me there. And I think uh, podcasting is kind of a new way for me to be out in the world, to be around people. You know, Working from home, being self-employed can be very uh, isolating. So I'm trying to change that. You know, Now that we're more settled, um, we're able to support ourselves. And so we're kind of moving out of that early kind of crisis slash kind of underdog mindset that we may have had um, in the early years of our work. So I feel pretty good about, you know, this coming year, 2024, um, a lot of exciting um, opportunities coming up uh, for me. And so, yeah, feel free to reach out through us, uh, with us through there, um, bernardpriscilla.com. There's a contact form uh, at the bottom of the site. And for all the listeners out there, I really enjoyed this conversation it's home, deeply personal, and um, love insights. All of Bernard's resources will be in the links and show notes. And with that, thanks so much for coming on to the podcast. Thank you so much. 
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. you are listening if you liked it be sure to like comment share subscribe we're on everywhere spotify itunes google amazon audible and without much ado be sure to thank this show's sponsors and we'll see you next week